In this episode, you'll meet Beza from Ethiopia. Beza worked at the nonprofit sector for most of her career in her home country and abroad, but four years ago, she stepped into the private sector. The conversation took various turns. We started talking about green economy, then discussed why it is important to support women to grow, and ended with a personal perspective. Beza talked about one specific segment of her fight with society expectations, which we are sure many of you listening will also recognize. At least we did. Enjoy. So excited to have another episode of She Rocks Global. Zoya and I today are so happy to have a guest, a very special guest by the name of Beza, who is right now located in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And so without much further ado, Beza, welcome to She Rocks Global. Thank you. Thank you. So Zoya and I were actually just thinking about this and we realized that you're our first guest on the podcast from Ethiopia, which is for me, I'm living in South Africa, Zoya is living in, in Serbia. And Ethiopia seems to hold this sort of mythical quality and narrative around it. So would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? And whilst you introduce yourself, maybe share something that you think we should know about where you are right now, physically, and of course, where you are in your in your life. Thank you. Uh, so I'm Beza. Uh, I am uh, I'm based in Ethiopia. I was born, raised and still living in Ethiopia. I moved around a bit around the, the world, but home is always Addis, Ethiopia. It is a country, is a, is a landlocked country in the Horn of Africa. We have an intact history of 3,000 years, and it's more of a religious country, both for Christian and Muslim. Uh, culture-wise, we're like 80-something uh, nations and nationalities, but the harmony and the diversity is what really keeps us intact. Together. So that's the beauty of Ethiopia. Our national language is Amharic. We have our own uh, alphabet, uh, what makes us different from the, our neighboring East African countries, I could say, is we have our own kind of uh, cuisine. If we have a national dish, national pancake like food, which is made out of wheat called if. So, unlike our uh, nearest neighbors, we are not very, uh, we're, we don't usually consume rice or other kinds of food, but it's mostly teff and the other lentils. So Ethiopia is uh, quite a very diverse country and quite an interesting and mountainous country. Uh, this is all I can say. Thank you. So much. No, that, that's amazing because for me, what I'm looking up is you shared with us around, you know, this history of 3,000 years of uninterruptedness. Um, I come from a country where our history has been interrupted um, by colonialism, by apartheid, and I think this applies to even Zoya. Your history has been interrupted as well in the Balkans. So it's really fascinating to hear you, you know, explain and describe what Ethiopia is about. Can you tell us a little bit more about who Beza is? So Beza, uh, Beza is, um, um, uh, as I told you, I was born and raised in Addis. So I am uh, trained as a biologist and chemist at Addis Ababa University. And I did my master's in botanical science. So basically my background is social science, no, natural science actually. But then after that, I joined uh, the UN where I worked with different UN organizations with the UN Environment, UN Industrialization, uh, UN Economy Commission, the African Union, all the, all the agencies 
nothing to do with the private sector. So I moved to the private sector for the past uh, four years just to see what is out there. So that's what I, so I'm currently working as a consultant for the African Development Bank on uh, circular economy and green economy, actually, because they go hand in hand. My passion is honestly to make sure that we are not eating from the future generation. We're actually, uh, that's what we're doing right now. We're, we're, we're using the future generation's resources. So how about make it more sustainable for them in the future, where we are also using it right now. So what I, what I do with my uh, work, through my work, is convince the, the governments, the private sector, the investors, or any any part of the society that sustainable consumption and production is actually doable and we need to invest on the future. So that's what I do for a living. And yeah, that's Beza. So I spend my uh, part-time, whatever time I have, with the, I'm a Rotarian. I'm a member of Rotary Club of Addis Ababa Central Mala. I've, I'm, I believe in sharing my uh, skills, time, and uh, hope with the society. So I work on a lot of voluntary projects with the Rotary Club here. Most of it is on literacy, water, access to clean water and sanitation and things like that. I am a very good yoga teacher. So I, I, I exercise and teach yoga. And we passion and meditation to young people. Because I, I, I missed the chance when I was younger to do that. So I want to make sure that the young ones get the chance as early as possible. So I teach children's yoga to the young ones until like 13, maximum years of age. So this is what I do. This is what I do with my free time. Wow, that is a, a lot of just uh, shared with us. Uh, I am also getting more and more involved into the circular economy and green economy. And I also see more and more women uh, taking uh, those roles of thinking about the community and about the future generations and how to leave this world better than uh, uh, it is right now. But can you share with us how it is you are talking with African governments, corporations, international institutions, and you're talking to them about something which people usually consider that it's something that once you are economically rich, then that's the point when you think about the planet. So I assume that when you're trying to uh, talk to them, they usually have a lot of excuses uh, why it should not be done. Uh, so if you can share with us, how do you convince them uh, differently? And and also, if you can maybe address how it looks in your working environment, doing it from a position of a woman, where I assume that a lot of people you are talking to are actually men. Well, answering your first question, when the, when in 1981, when the climate change was, was actually brought to the table, uh, what actually was concerning to the West, well, the developed nations is that they've already used their resources, they've developed, of course, but at the expense of their uh, environment. Industrial revolution has its own impact, like the good and the bad part. So they don't want to make that mistake with the countries which are considered to be still in the path of development because they, they have the chance to make sure that that path is not take, that mistake is not going to be done again and again. So that was uh, Africa's contribution to the table at that time. We, we did not, we're, we're still industrializing, 
and we're not part of the the, the part we're not part of the party which is creating that industrial pollution but we're also developing now and then we have the chance of not making the mistake which was done during the industrial revolution so Africa's position is that we are not the major contributors to these pollutions, but we are also the major parties which are affected by it because climate change affects the developing nations more than the developed nations. So the question comes, so why, why, do, we, why do we pay for what was done by the West? But then at the end of the day, we're all going to live in one planet. There is no planet for the West and there is no one for the East. No, So uh, to live harmoniously, there was a need to bring everyone on the table. And for us, the, the solution was to forge our paths in a more cleaner way. The issue of technology, the issue of finance, the issue of uh, uh, government logistic legal frameworks, which needed to be places, had to be capacitated by the parties who were uh, causing the problem, so that created that that kind of marriage where uh, the two parties came together, and that's how we ended up having these climate change negotiations, which are still going on, uh, because at the end of the day we all live in the same in the same planet. So bringing it down from the negotiations which are taking place at the government level to do the job, the role of the government is just to set the path, not to give you the guidance and the logistics, the legal frameworks and governance structures. But to actually do it on the ground, it is the responsibility of all stakeholders and it includes the private sector. It includes the society as a, as a consumer ourselves. It also affects that, that uh, we should also consume in a very sustainable way. So what I do with my uh, engagement with the private sector is uh, convince them that they can actually produce or manufacture things and still make sure that it is environmentally safe. They really don't have to use unnecessary energy, unnecessary water, which they could have conserved for future generations. And then also save money. You know, the cost of production is actually quite expensive, getting expensive. They could also extract resources, which is also sustainably. So those are the things that I bring to the table to the private sector, telling them you can use resource efficiency with the renewable energies like this. You can use the wastewater treatment plants to conserve water. You can use chemicals in a less, more harmful way. And then as an incentive, you get rewarded. By, the, by adding premier prices or costs to the products that you sell wherever, whether it is abroad or in their country. For example, leather, leather is one of the most polluting material which is produced in the planet, on the planet. If they produce uh, leather using chemicals like chrome and still pollute the environment, there is another option for them to use organic materials, vegetables, to do the tanning. And for that, they get premium price. So that's where the private sector's heart ticks and bits. No, whenever it is about profit making, they will be convinced. So I bring to the table to them that apart from your uh, corporate social responsibility and ethical consideration, how about you put also profit margins, which is something that you're going to really invest on. So those are the kinds of negotiations that actually take in my daily conversations with the private sector. You're helping them sleep better and earn more money at the same time. Yep, yep. Yeah. I'd like to add maybe from the second question that Zoya had asked, because um, 
you know, you've described such an intense and technical experience that you have and, and how, you know, as Zoya is saying, helping, you know, people make money while sleeping better. And I think it's this idea of being able to locate people, planet and profit in exactly the same conversation all the time. And so for me, it comes back to this idea now, your position as a woman, and you said something that really resonated with me, which was, why do we pay for, you know, the mistakes of others? So, you know, on one level, this idea of, well, the West was seen to be a major contributor to climate change, and yet it's African countries um, that are now, you know, most adversely affected by, you know, the effects of climate change. I feel like that conversation then also applies to women. Um, there are so many things that we could talk about the patriarchy that have now gone on that are not really working for us as humanity. And the people who then bear the brunt in terms of either economic hardship, physical hardship, um, then end up being women. And I think that applies to climate change in the sense that the person who's going to suffer the most is going to be the African woman. How do you as Basil, when you're sitting having these incredibly technical conversations and yet you're an African woman how do you maintain a balance where you don't actually become completely outraged or frustrated or then maybe want to walk away because maybe it feels too big how do you maintain your sense of purpose as you go into this work oh that's a very good question one of the biggest challenges that you might face as a woman in uh, in this kind of uh, engagement, whether it is with all the stakeholders, I could say, is you might end up being the only woman in the room. No? It could be a boardroom, it could be a factory room, a facility, or it, it could even be a meeting where you have a meeting with the villagers when, when, when it is very clear that the men are not really actually involved in the water fetching programs, uh, in the water fetching activities, you see them in the forefront discussing on behalf of the women. And you wonder... Uh, so when are the women going to raise their voice? When are they going to be directly in charge of their destiny, in charge of their engagement with their day-to-day -day activities? Because if you break it down, uh, every activity that is going to be affected by climate change has more impact on women than uh, men. Uh, the reason why I'm saying is the first thing that affects them is fuel wood. Women are involved with that one. They are involved with the water fetching. The water is also affected. They are involved with the checking, taking care of their families with this new, uh, with the natural disasters taking place. Uh, they are the first victims in any front that you go. Uh, so, like the first thing people ask you when you go to this kind of meetings is, of course, they will notice that you are a woman, uh, and then that will add an extra extra effort from your side to make sure that you are heard well and above that the problems and the men and the women in the room but the, um, my my always my my always tactic is to be passionate about it. how i do that is uh, for example we go to the village to dig water wells i make sure that the women are actually present in the water committees as one of the most criteria uh, it doesn't matter if they speak or not because in the long run they will get the sense that aha, I'm actually part of the solution. No, I'm all not, I'm always not at the end of the victim uh, role. That's one. And number two, once they are in the room, they want to talk, but they don't want to know, make a mistake, and they always shy away. So I always give them the opportunity to explain themselves. It doesn't necessarily has to be correct or even elegant or like 
the top of the science, uh, like a very complicated comment, but I want them to be engaged in the conversation. That will give them the opportunity when they go back home, they will start thinking, you know, I can also do this, I can also do that. The third and most important thing is most of the businesses here in Ethiopia, the private sector is actually not, is underdeveloped. And the few companies which are around are owned, obviously owned by men. And the capacity is actually like the capital they have is big. But then when there are small and medium enterprises which are set up, I always opt for choosing the women entrepreneurs who are on board. Again, the, the, their idea doesn't necessarily has to be ex- like very, very good. Or the profit they make is also not big. That I, that's not my uh, my agenda all the time. The reason being, you know, women are here expected to be housewives, which they have been okay with, and no one questions that. But the thing is, the minute they start making few bucks, like it doesn't be, have to be like the whole month's uh, grocery or something. The minute she earns a few bucks, uh, money, she starts building on that. And you see the change faster than the men. Because, um, I mean, I'm a, don't get me wrong, I'm not against the men making money, but I am against the issue of not involving women in the, giving the opportunity to make that money. So if you give uh, $1,000 for a woman entrepreneur and then another $1,000 for a man, the difference is visible because the women will strive to make another 1000 like they, they, they are very eager to make the, the use the opportunity. So for that reason, uh, I always opt for choosing the women SMEs. There's nothing to do with feminism. I'm not. <laughs> I just wanted to make clear that. But then, in my view, women are really good in making profits about the small amount of support that you give them. The same thing with the training. A woman who can't read and write, once she learns how to read and write, the, the second thing that she comes to her mind is make sure that all her daughters are getting the same amount of education, if not more than her. So that gives you the, 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 the picture, the bigger picture that women uh, are more societal oriented, they're more inclusive than men. So those are the small tactics that I try to introduce in my day-to-day activities. And the higher you go and get tougher, I understand that the boardrooms get thinner and thinner with women <laughs> involvement. But I'm fighting it. I'm fighting it. Excellence always makes you stand out from the crowd, honestly. So you work hard and make sure that you are always represented in the room. Being in the room has much more effect <laughs> than being outside and complaining. So it's always about being on the table. Yes, sitting at the table, I agree. Uh, What you just shared is incredible, especially because when we started this conversation, you didn't even uh, mention that uh, segment, that you are through the activities that you are working on, also trying to empower more women uh, to take... uh, bigger roles and and uh, to to build the society in towards a more equal equal yeah. one uh, but while i was listening to you because what we like to do in this podcast is also talk a little bit about work but then talk a little bit about private life and then mix it all together and while i was listening to you 
talking about uh, challenges that uh, women in Ethiopia, but I also think globally, are facing in one way or the other. Um, what was the biggest um, stressful situation that happened to you, which you connect uh, with the fact that you were a woman? I have to be very straightforward with you here. Uh, I'm actually not married. And uh, in Ethiopia, well, it's actually the story of a good majority of African women like me. So at school, my um, I was lucky. My, my parents believed in quality education. So they sent me and my brother to the best school in town. I'm always grateful for what they did for us in that, in that aspect. So at school, you learn you're equal with the boys. And uh, I mean, I grew up in Addis, so in Addis, it was not a matter of, uh, uh, you know, girls being in the kitchen is not that right, that much, very stressful. So I, I so you go to school, you, you study and you make good grades. I was actually quite a very good, smart student, one of the smart students. Uh, and then I went to the university. It's also the same. That was when I realized that I'm actually quite different because they started, they, they told me that as a, one of the girls in the university stated that as a girl, you can get a very low mark and still go to the engineering because there is a system called quota system to make sure that all the women are getting equal opportunities like the boys. So I, I was actually offended when, uh, when they say that because I told them, why is it that they considered us to be, you know, lower than the boys that they gave us this opportunity? And she said, she, she was actually not from Addis, and she said, you know, in Addis, outside Addis Beza, uh, the girls didn't get these opportunities, and then now they have to get this opportunity. And I was not convinced, but then I, I, when, when I went to work, I realized what she was talking. Women were not given equal opportunities. They were given opportunities. The table, the opportunity they gave them on the table is you get married to someone and start family as early as possible. Take care of yourself and, if possible, your parents. So after that, when I go to uh, the workspace, that's when I actually saw the gap, no? Women are actually not really expected to uh, be a career woman and then also as a family woman. No? Some of my friends managed to do it, but it was quite a hassle. And that really affected their career. So me, as I grew up in my career ladder, the first thing everyone asked me, are you married, Beza? No. Uh, do you have a family? No. Not kid, no. And then I was like, okay, this thing is a must to fit into the society. Everyone uh, in the society, um, I mean, it's, it's the way our society is. I'm not criticizing it for what it is, just what it is, no? You're more valued as a mother, as a family woman than a career woman. And taking those two things together is something that everyone expects from you, no? And then that's quite a tough thing. But again, I, I, I made up my mind, if I have to work, it has to be something that I do with passion, and it doesn't necessarily have to fit into the society's expectation of me. But the society's expectation, the pressure from your family, friends, and all, it is how it is with our society. It's, it's a little bit better in the West also, but I, I, I've learned, I, I've been living in Geneva for some time, and what I realized is that in the Western society, the women have actually broke, they broke the ceiling. No, They're no longer bounded by those rules and regulations but still the subtle expectation uh, you're not still you have you know you still have that obligation to fit the family picture 
which is not the case for men. It is not the case for men. And uh, ironically, uh, your male colleagues also uh, judge you for not being soft. So those are the things that you make you feel somehow discriminated against. But honestly, I I am beyond that. I, I don't think that should be a priority. So that's what I would say. I think that's quite a universal experience for many women around the world in terms of um, how society still places value on us based on our status, be it marriage or motherhood. And so for me, I think what is what has come through as a pattern is that many women who are in this situation, they then tend to surround themselves with another circle of women. And so I'm wondering if you have a circle of women and how you support each other to make sure that you continue to have your voices being heard and also allow for other women's voices to be heard. So are you able to describe what your circle of support looks like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Your friends are your first uh, line of defense, honestly. They're the, your support group, you know, uh, whether they, are, they have a family or, okay, the ones who have family actually expect you to join the part and join their group. So the, the inclination is, ah, you know, you should get married before it's too late. Uh, no, but the, the peer group, uh, your friends are your, your frontline defense mechanisms. They, they give you the support. It's a, it's a, it's a two-way thing, no? Give support to each other because you understand the situation, no? The, the, the decisions that you make uh, is probably the same thing that has been going on in their head or what they're doing now. So friends are actually quite good uh, to uh, to discuss or engage with. Uh, but not everyone, uh, I mean, it's changing these days, no? In um, the society is ac- accepting you to some level, but still uh, the stigma might be there, not stigma, but actually like a kind of uh, looking down on, on you. But uh, you find mentors, no? Well, along with the paths of life, uh, life also gives you some women friends who are, who understands the situation in you are. So you join that group, no? You share your life with those kind of uh, women. Thank you, Beza, for sharing this. I really uh, think it's valuable and um you did mention that in some other societies, it's maybe not that developed, but I somehow feel, and Maka, uh, our third uh, co-host, often talks about it, that often people uh, relate to her success as, oh, okay, but you don't have yeah. kids. That's why you made it, and that's how you can do it. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult situation, but what I also think about... Um, I am happy that I uh, and lucky, very lucky that uh, I, I am married and I have a, a, a very great husband. But I often think, especially when we started dating, uh, how di- difficult it was for him at the first uh, periods of our relationship. Because at that time I was even uh, very fighting some uh, gender discrimination here in Serbia and was present at TV stations at the new and was labeled like a feminist who is against um, some uh, popular TV host. And uh, and that that was the time when we were starting dating. And I was uh, really lucky that he was able to go past past that because I know that his friends were probably teasing him, had some thoughts about it uh, and things like that. And on top of that, you know what? a woman we we are both equally successful I would say and that's also another difficult thing to to live with and when you talk about this I imagine that it's even 
that front is also difficult dating and and even if you are not like close like i don't want to get married it's very difficult to find uh, somebody who is uh, supportive and i think one should not compromise because then uh, in some sense we lose uh, we lose who we are but i just wanted to share that aspect because i'm i assume you've faced it as yeah. well yeah yeah I have um, a very simple question for you, Beza, yes. which is what makes you rock? Hard work, I think. I'm actually, uh, I believe in hard work, yeah. Because uh, hard work always pays, no? In whatever you're doing, uh, you give it 100%. And if not today, it would pay off definitely tomorrow. So I believe uh, the, the key to my uh, humble success is hard work. So, yeah. Thank you. I think it's such a it's such an interesting point to share as we wrap up this conversation because when you started this conversation, you laid out the context of this long and ancient history and the ancient paths that your country has walked, which means that that's a part of hard work, right? Every single day adds up to this ancient history. And so in terms of you, as you start putting together, you know, your story, it's about this hard work and every single day matters, every single action matters. Um, and so I'm looking forward and I think our audience will look forward to see more in terms of where does Beza go and what comes out of Beza's life and Addis. And so I want to thank you for rocking and thank you for giving us your time today. My pleasure. My pleasure. It was an honor. Europe's Global is a podcast collaboration produced by Macarena Bota from Uruguay, Noavisa Mayema from South Africa, and Zoya Kukic from Serbia. This season of Europe's Global was recorded at the American Corner in Cape Town, South Africa, which is also where you will find our sound engineer Tikre Kikana. The music for this podcast was composed and arranged through a collaboration between South African musician Nosihe and Hannah Sikasa from Germany. Mixing engineer was T. Luminous. She Rocks Global is a podcast that showcases the stories of perfectly imperfect women from all across the globe. Should you be one or know someone whom you think we should be talking to, please let us know. You can find us in Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook through our handle at SheRocksGlobal, hashtag SheRocks. Until next time, keep rocking!